This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week, we have an art retrospective and a fascinating tale of a piece of art that has been missing for 80 years. A sculpture show that explores how human evolution has arrived at the era of connection via technology, and an upcoming play about a wildly dysfunctional family that is a balancing act between moments of dark humour and moments of emotional toxicity, and which has been described as an acting cornucopia. It's a full show, as usual, so let's start with the retrospective and the case of the art that vanished. The Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre is named after the mural painter and artist Tracy Montminy, who taught art at the University of Missouri from 1948 until her retirement 30 years later, and whose work is on display in the gallery bearing her name through April the 9th. Tracy was a graduate of Radcliffe College, which at the time of her attendance in the early 1930s was a women-only liberal arts college, the counterpart of the all-male Harvard. She also spent a year studying at the Art Students League of New York, an institution patronised by numerous 20th century art luminaries such as Norman Rockwell, Helen Frankenthaler, Roy Lichtenstein and Thomas Hart Benton. Although she was known primarily as a painter and art professor in later life, Tracy's early art career was dominated by large-scale murals, five of which she was commissioned to paint around the country as part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal Work Projects Administration during the Great Depression. And it was the last of these five commissioned murals painted in 1941 in Kennebunkport, Maine, and entitled The Bathers, which became so controversial that ultimately President Harry S. Truman decided its fate. But more on that in a little while. Before she died, Tracy endowed the Boone County Historical Society with a large financial gift to house and preserve the art of both her and her late husband, Edmund Pierre Montminy, and continue to display their work on a rotating basis in perpetuity. The last time a major retrospective of Tracy's work was on display was back in 2011 to celebrate what would have been her 100th birthday. This year's show coincides, through pandemic delay, with the 30th anniversary of her death in 1992. And I am delighted to welcome back to the show art curator Audrey Flory, who together with Lorinda Bradley planned the current retrospective show. Hello, Audrey. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Diana. Working on a show like this must be an art curator's dream as you've got all the archive materials right there and unfettered access to everything. How familiar were you with Tracy Montminy's work before starting to curate it all? I was somewhat familiar with Tracy's work because of the bicentennial that I curated last year and just working in the space. And I got a little familiar with some of her work and her archives. But really, uh, I did not know, you know, that much about her before this show and before my work beginning at the Mott Mini Gallery, just 
some weeks ago. Um, and that's not to say that I'm a novice on it now, um, but it has been really interesting getting to know her work through the vast collections and the photographs and the archives that we have. It's a, it's a really rich collection and we're very fortunate to have it. You stepped into the curation of this show after the former gallery director, Lorinda Bradley, and even before her, Kate Gray, had started the planning for the show. How much of your own creation of Trace's work is inherent in the show? So Lorinda uh, Bradley, she did leave and um, moved on to another opportunity, but she started this really wonderful project, kind of developing the theme of it, which focused uh, on a lot of Tracy's mural paintings, focusing on her childhood works. So while Lorinda handled some of the main themes behind the show, myself, along with another guest curator, actually Marta Waters, who is a PhD student at the University of Missouri in the School of Visual Studies, um, we were able to choose the works that fit within each category and decided which ones best fit to then hang on the wall and design the show around the themes that Lorinda had decided on, which which was not an easy task, to say the <laughs> least, <laughs> because there are so many works. And not just that, there are just such a diverse range of works, really, that came from Montmagny's body of painting and, and drawings. So walk us through the exhibit in terms of what arc of Trace's life, what arc of the story you wanted to take the gallery visitor on. So when you look at this, you really could maybe, you know, as it says, it's a retrospective, but also kind of set up how a monograph would be written. We really tried to focus on these different aspects of Tracy's life that highlight these very pivotal moments, I guess, is what we would call them. So we focused on the early years of her life when she was born and focused on some of her education where she attended school, as you pointed out. Um, so we chose works that really highlighted the start of her career. So there's a vast range of these really just interesting watercolors, paintings, and drawings from her childhood. And she actually started working on several works related to Alice in Wonderland at just the age of 12 years old. And so several of the works that we decided to hang were actually related to that concept. And so there's different ones too. There's ones that are more watercolor based and others that are gouache and acrylic based, um, which really demonstrates this fascination that she had with Alice in Wonderland, which is kind of an interesting little quirk, I think. But also too, she did a lot of designs in her early childhood years that are reflective of what we would view as illustrations during that time period. And then we moved into her time with her mural painting. So there's, you know, a large section that's devoted to that because we do have several pieces to her murals, whether that's sketches or drawings or photographs, or even parts of a mural that got dismembered or that was just an entire sketch devoted to one section. So we focused on the mural painting, but then we also too focused on Pierre and Tracy together. And we focused on some of their works that they created together, as well as some of their representations of one another. So within that scope, we included 
several portraits that Tracy completed of Pierre that are just phenomenal. And then there's one work that's really interesting um, that the two of them created together. It's this abstract Christ looking portrait uh, that's really fascinating. And then so beyond that, Lorinda was clever enough to pull out these different quotes based on her painting and drawings throughout the years. And so we pulled works that highlighted some of these quotes. For instance, one of her quotes says, my idea of a good drawing is one that shows no hesitation. It's spontaneous and sure. It has its own kind of special beauty, like the beauty of a classical molding or the profile of a Greek vase. And so kind of what resonates in that line is thinking of this sculpturesque like figures, which are really reflected in her large scale works. Um, you can see the way that she models a figure, whether it's realistic or abstract, it has this very sculptural quality to it. So we just tried to pull out different works that highlighted some of these aspects of her career that we felt had had maybe been overlooked or that devoted a little more attention to. So tell me a little bit about the archive you have there. You have all of this work from her childhood. I mean, she must never have thrown anything away. (laughs) (laughs) How many rooms is it of work? I mean, how vast is the archive? The archive, I mean, it is extremely extensive. So our art vault alone, a large portion of the storage in that vault is dedicated to Tracy Mottmany's work. So there's over... I think a thousand paintings total in the BCHS permanent collection with, I would say, 75% of that work being Tracy and Pierre's paintings, works on paper, again, photographs. And yes, it really does seem like she never threw anything away. But then when it comes to the photographic images, that is housed in a different vault. But we have such a vast range of those objects as well, with several photographs documenting her lifespan, her work on these murals, and then her work, of course, at the university. Um, so there's several several boxes to still go through that I'm still becoming acquainted with, and several drawers uh, of works on paper that still have to be gone through as well for me to become more familiar with it, because there is just such um, an enormous <laughs> amount. There is within her work, some of the works you have in the show, are components of, a, of almost a brooding darkness, a sense of foreboding in some of the works from the 50s and 60s, works like Antichrist and Harlequin or Earth Dancers or The Harrowing of Hell. And even though they are 60 years old, they feel very commensurate with the distress of the world in 2022. Tell us a little bit about these seemingly darker works and whether that was an era of her output. That's really interesting you bring that up, actually, because one of the included quotes for this exhibition, so again, this is coming from Tracy Montmany, quote, I frequently use Christian themes because they form the basis of our iconographical heritage. It's the way we've expressed certain basic universal concerns about the fate of man, about life and death, end quote. Um, So I think that was something that was very much so on Tracy's mind when she was creating these works was the rise and fall of man. And then I think too, also how, um, religion plays a role in these and, and, 
people's behavior, which therefore is reflected in her work because she also highly believed in creating works that were based on culture. Well, we can't talk about Tracy Mormoney without talking about the murals she was commissioned to paint by the US Treasury as part of the New Deal's goal to provide an income for the thousands of unemployed artists during the Great Depression and also to uplift the spirit of the American people. The first of her five commissions was painted in 1936 at the Fire and Police Building in Saugus, Massachusetts. I if I pronounced that correctly. But tell us how that first commission came about. When the WPA mural program started, uh, as you mentioned, with the New Deal art program, she completed six mural commissions in total. And so that one there in 35 was her first one. And I think that just came from the fact that she was participating in this democratic form of art. And again, I, you know, she was a believer in that art should reflect the people. And I think that's one of the reasons why she began to participate in this New Deal program is because that's what the program was intended for. I mean, I guess there were thousands of artists applying. I mean, she had an impressive background having been at Radcliffe and studied at the Art Students League of New York. Do you think it was connections that she had or do you think it was just the power of her work that spoke to people that were commissioning? It's really interesting, the more research I've done on these women artists, and especially women artist educators. So as Tracy was, she was an educator as well. And it seems that a lot of the women who graduated from Radcliffe ended up becoming women artist educators. And I can't speak for all of them, but a large majority of them. And so I do think that education role, that drive to create something that might have a didactic purpose is one of the reasons why she chose that. But with the WPA and the New Deal art program, these artists were competing with one another to get a specific commission. And it was really just based on the location and what their drawing or subject said about that given location. There was some controversy around another mural she painted in the City Hall in Medford, Massachusetts, called The Terror of the Wilderness, because it did contain nudity. But the real ire that echoed into the corridors of power in Washington was reserved for her 1941 work called The Bathers, which she painted in the post office at Kennebunkport, Maine, and which, in her words, depicted a group of summer resorters relaxing on the sand at Goose Rock Beach and for which she was paid $700, which is about $13,500 today. But tell us about this controversial work. Yeah, so it's really interesting to consider because upon looking at it, it really just is a group of individuals <laughs> who, who are leisurely um, enjoying their summer day at the beach. But I think what a lot of this came down to with a lot of these projects, a part of the WPA was who the work was being created for and the types of people it was reflecting. So within this mural, the particular controversy was the fact that the woman she portrayed, particularly one in a yellow bathing suit, was a normal woman. Um, she was not idealized in her figure. She was not maybe what was typical of the time where they were portrayed maybe more on this model-esque side of being thin. But Tracy painted a woman who was just real and that came with curves. And so some of the people did not particularly enjoy that this woman was being portrayed in this type of manner. But also as well, and this kind of leads into our 
2023 year, a conversation with artist Star Varner, she noticed in the background of this mural that there is also a young black boy and a white boy playing together. And this young black boy is the only black figure that is within the mural. And so it is perhaps believed to also be um, a controversy uh, of race at the time. And again, who this mural was representing in the given context. And from my understanding, Kennebunkport is more of an affluent area. And so they perhaps took issue with the way that the women were being portrayed, and then perhaps the racial integration that was occurring as well. Because you have to remember, this was still during the Jim Crow era. Right. We should just say that Starvana was a pupil of Tracy Montminis at the University of Missouri, and she is today a professor of art at Georgetown University in yes. Texas. And she will be here next year doing a show specifically about this work. The two most vocal critics of this work were a Pulitzer Prize winning author called Booth Tarkington and a friend of his who is also a best-selling author and a journalist called Kenneth Roberts and they said that the painting was an eyesore and that the whole town was ashamed of it for its depiction of quote fat hussies and shameless maids and that it was an inartistic and dismal combination of Coney Island and Mexican realism even though just to stress there was no nudity in this work and it was a mixture of men and women. And I think it is so indicative of the fact that politics never changes that in order to get rid of this alleged eyesore, because removing a work of art from a federal building, in this case a post office, had to be approved way up the chain of command, that a local senator attached a special rider to a $3 billion appropriations bill that went to Congress requesting the removal of the bathers, which ultimately was signed by President Harry S. Truman and led to, in 1945, the replacement of Tracy Montminy's work with a much more benign painting of the Kennebunkport Harbour, referencing the town's history as a ship building port. Oh my gosh. And I think also one of the most ridiculous things about this criticism was that Booth Tarkington, the major critic, was legally blind by the time he was criticising the work, which is just ridiculous. Right. And in, in a litany of outrageous treatment of Tracy and her work in Kennebunkport, one of the most egregious is that no one told her what was going on. She and her husband, Pierre, were living in Austin, Texas. And by the time she got the news her work had already been replaced. And it just seems stunning that no one could tell her what had happened to her work. Had it been removed somewhere or had it been destroyed? Are there letters, if you come across in the archives, about her search for the truth about her work? So I haven't come across any personally in the archive, but based on Lorinda's research, it is believed that the town painted over the mural. But then there's also rumors, too, that it was removed and has been stored elsewhere or perhaps destroyed. And so I haven't come across anything in the archives, but it would be interesting to know um, because she was painting this mural within the within the building itself. So 
to my knowledge, it was not an artwork that was completed in her studio and then taken in and installed. It was painted within the post office itself. Um, so it would be interesting to know a little bit more as to what ultimately happened, whether it was painted or in fact uninstalled and then destroyed. I just have to close this with a, another quote because it's just so outrageous in 2022 and there's so much body shaming involved in it. And one of the main senators, Ralph Brewster, had said that our only objection was that the murals depicted feminine forms absolutely foreign to the great state of Maine. Our Maine women do not bulge fore and aft in this unsightly manner. Our women folks bulge in only the most delightful ways. (laughs) It's just amazing. An amazing story. As As I said to you earlier, there should be a documentary about this. It's just incredible. Yes, yes. It is definitely fascinating, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, what we will see with Star Barner's work next year. Because of her many years spent teaching at the University of Missouri and her bequest gift to the Boone History and Culture Center, I mean, her legacy is relatively well known in Columbia. What extent do you think is her legacy still alive on a national level? I think Tracy has a very profound uh, legacy and purpose on a national level, especially considering her treatment going through with the mural that we that we just talked about in Kenny Bunkport, but also too, as someone who is paving new ways uh, for different forms of artistry within academia, she was one of the first artist educators in the nation to create a mural painting program that occurred at the University of Missouri. Um, And just considering the breadth of her work in general, you know, she really was a profound artist in her own right, but also an institution builder when you consider how she also donated money and her work to then establish the Montminy Gallery. Well, the collection of 50 plus drawings and paintings by Tracy Montminy, plus selected photographs and materials from the Boone History and Culture Center's archives, will be on display at the Montminy Gallery through April the 9th. The centre and the gallery are open Wednesday through Saturday from 10 till 5 and there is no admission charge. And you can see some of the images from the show on their website at boonhistory.org. Thank you so much, Audrey, for telling us a little bit about Tracy Montminy and the retrospective and for making time to chat today. Yes, thank you so much, Diana. It was a pleasure. One of my favourite comedy clips of all time is Bronze Orientation Day by UK comedy sketch show duo Mitchell and Webb. It is three minutes of brilliance that is well worth tracking down. Just search for Bronze Orientation Day and it will come right up. Which is a roundabout way of segueing to my next guest, Columbia-based bronze sculptor Chad Lefevre, whose introduction to the brilliance of bronze started serendipitously when he started working for a fine art foundry eight years ago, helping other artists with their own bronze sculptures. It was love at first sight or first touch and Chad says how he knew straight away that sculptures were his future, even though his educational background was maybe closer to Mitchell and Webb's Bronze Orientation Day as his degree is in cultural anthropology and archaeology. For the next couple of weeks, you can see Chad's sculptural works on display in the Hardwick Gallery at Columbia College and a show called Dissension. And I am delighted to welcome Chad to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Chad. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Well, tell me about the love at first touch experience that you had with bronze. 
Well, there's just something about bronze, either in its raw form or when it's um, beautifully patinated, that invites you to just lean in and touch it and be next to it and really just gaze deeply. And it's um, totally accentuated by the actual form itself. And you can't help but just stare at bronze or just you just touch it. You know, it, it really does beg you to touch. Had you worked with bronze before? No, no, before the foundry, I had done some welding and fabricating in college and for friends, but I've never had a chance to work with that particular metal up close. But I had been invited by a friend to go meet the owner of this foundry, and it ended up in, I got a job there. It was really, it was serendipity. I was immediately reminded of that Mitchell and Webb sketch when I read something that had been written about how you tell stories through your art by creating fine art bronze cast fossils merged with wood and stone to create an artistic homage to Earth's prehistoric past. So tell us a little bit more about those stories and what fascinations with Earth's past that you want to express through your sculptures. That's one component of the sculptures that I am interested in, but in particular those Bronze sculptures are a way to bring Earth's history and put it right in your hand in a way that's not quite just like holding a fossil, where a fossil is beautiful, but a bronze sculpture that's that's an exact replica of a fossil, they're so warm and almost realistic compared to a cold, hard rock. And um, my wife is a geologist, and so we have plenty of rocks around our house, but I was always, I'd always thought about casting some fossils in bronze and then because my wife is always bringing things like that home, it was quite easy to make that connection. So you are originally from California and you got your Bachelor of Arts degree at the University of Nevada, as I said, in cultural anthropology and archaeology. That's correct. And so this job that you got at the foundry, was it totally random or or had you thought that this might be part of your life plan? No, it was it was fairly random. Um, a good friend of mine was a neighbor who lived across the street and he was telling me that the man who owned the foundry, which was a friend of his, wanted to sell the foundry and that I should talk to him. And I, I went out there and we just we hung out for the whole day. And then in the end, he offered me a job. And I um, I wouldn't say that I accentuated my skill set, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, parlay that into a well-paying job doing something that I had always loved doing for fun and ended up as just a really amazing transition from the career that I was on to a new career where I could build all manner of art for all manner of artists. And uh, yeah, it was just an awesome job. What career path were you on before that? Well, I had worked as an archaeologist doing field work for a really long time. And I have also been a bike mechanic for almost 20 years, bicycles, which I still do part time, but I, I mostly transitioned out of that now. And so you spent seven years there working on other artists' work and here in mid-Missouri, in terms of what you have done to date, your artistic impact, you have a larger scale bronze monument called Adjacent in Community Park in Jefferson City. And then you have these much smaller works on display right now in the Hardwick Gallery. Where does your artistic heart lie, in the big or in the small? I'm definitely drawn to the monumental scale. It's, there's just something about a piece of art that you can walk up and either walk inside of like adjacent and become part of the art temporarily and something that you can touch and something that you can see from far away that really becomes part of the community in general. I like that a lot better than a, a piece that's going to sit inside in somebody's house and maybe never be seen by anybody else. Mm. And I, I feel like art is a way to tell a story that involves everybody if they want to be involved. And so the reach is far wider and it, 
the longer I become involved with art and build sculptures, I really feel like art should tell a story, something that can connect with people, you know, to bring people together and have a discussion. So tell us about your show Dissension at the Hardwick Gallery. What is your vision for the works in that show? Well, that show really was born out of COVID, like a lot of things have been in the past several years. As I sat home with my children, 18 months of lockdown, there was a whole lot of computer engagement, you know, with the children through their schoolwork and as adults scrolling through our phones, watching the world fall apart. And it just made me realize how much disconnection we have with other people in so many ways. But I feel like the center of it was the cell phone because everyone sits around and scrolls on their phone or you can't see someone walk into a, to a doctor's office without sitting down and immediately pulling their phone out. Mm-hmm. And really the show centers around that. This technology has filled this um, this void that we sort of need as a, to connect with people. And we are doing that over the with technology now rather than in person. And that's kind of what the show centers around. Talk a little bit about the works that are in the show. They're pretty eclectic. Yeah. Some seem more amorphous. Some are very specifically uh, much more kind of realistic. Talk about the range of works. Yeah, the range of works, they at, at first glance may not seem connected, but I sort of had this this vision of a primordial human species crawling out of the ooze and going through a long period of evolution to land where we are now, which if you walk through the show, there's the amorphous, very abstract animal shapes that change and evolve as you walk around the room and end with the man holding the cell phone, you know, more or less. And so I feel like we've, we're making this transition into a different species almost in the way that we're using technology. Talk a little bit about your preferred process. You say it's silicon bronze, either cast or sculpted directly from bronze sheet. Describe that for us. What does that mean? Well, traditionally, bronze art is is made through the lost wax casting technique, much the same way that fine jewelry is made, where you have um, an original clay sculpture where a mold is made from that, and then you fill that mold with wax, and then that wax gets encased in a hard outside shell which then gets heated up and the wax melts out and then that shell becomes a positive that bronze is poured into it's a very long process and in the end you break the shell off and you have this positive mold of your original sculpture in clay but the way i've been sculpting is what we call direct metal sculpture where you take a raw piece of flat material and you shape it into the the vision you have or the idea. And so that's what I do. I I buy bronze sheet metal and turn it into the art that you saw at the show. So none of that is cast. It's all hand-shaped and cut and hammered and welded and ground and patinaed in my little 300-square-foot studio here in Columbia. Do you have your own foundry here? I don't have a foundry. I've thought about it, but they're fairly environmentally unfriendly with the petroleum-based waxes that you have to burn to melt out. They make quite a quite an ugly mess and uh it's just can be dangerous too you're you're pouring essentially 2100 degree metal and if you have a moment of inattention you could seriously hurt yourself yeah and so for me i i like the direct metal sculpture mostly because you can change direction at a moment's notice whereas with a cast item you're more or less relegated to the thing that you've originally thought of and so it's much easier to switch directions immediately if you want to 
and change the whole thing if you want. So being a bronze sculpture is not, I'm guessing, inexpensive. Your material costs are a lot higher than, say, a watercolor painter or someone who's sculpting in wood. So if you're doing work on spec, like the whole show at the Hardwick Gallery, then that's all your own cost. How does the money flow in the world of bronze sculpting? Do you have to sell work to make work, one out, one in? Pretty much, yeah. So those pieces are a bit of a gamble. And, you know, I do sell work, but also you have to have a body of work and you have to you definitely have to invest some money up front. But however, with uh, public art commissions like adjacent, those you have to apply for and you have to budget before you get the piece of sculpture built. So for instance, that piece, I had to make a budget or I had to be proposed. Then I had to make a budget and I had to be accepted. And then I had to go buy all the materials and make the art. So that's a little different because that can produce income. And then I can use that money to produce other art. Right. Tell me a little bit about that piece adjacent. It's two larger than life figures, one with a kind of a gold colored patina, one more bronze colored, and they stand with heads bowed towards each other a few feet apart. And there is definitely a feeling of sadness between them. Tell us a little bit about that work. That piece is installed in Community Park, which is part of the original African-American community known as the Foot District in Jefferson City, where that community essentially was self-contained and had every imaginable business you could think of to sustain a community. And the community park was a, a place where everyone could come and gather. And they had a, there used to be a swimming pool there and all kinds of facilities. But the city wanted to have a sculpture series at this park, which had been newly renovated. And they wanted the theme to revolve around how the African-American community, specifically the Foot District, fit within Jefferson City. And uh, this piece was proposed to to fit in that park. The two figures loosely represent African-American person and a, and a non-African-American person, specifically a white person, because during that time of urban renewal and segregation, those two groups were not really coexisting in a very harmonious manner. And so that particular sculpture tries to really represent how the two groups of people have traditionally been separated with such a wide gulf between them, but also so close together because they did interact on a daily basis. And uh, that's what I was attempting to portray in that sculpture. And also the way that they are looking towards each other, almost, almost begging to make it work, you know, to come together, find some common ground, because in the end, we're really not any different. But it does come off as sad. I would agree. What are you working on next? I've got a commission for another sculpture, a monumental sculpture that will be installed in the same park, actually. And it's um, it'll be a bit of a departure for me because it'll be all stainless steel. And this one will be it'll be about six foot tall, but sitting on a on a two foot tall plinth. And so overall, it'll be larger than life. It'll be about eight feet tall. And uh, I can't give anything away just yet because it has not been announced publicly, but it's going to be pretty cool. Okay, well, we'll wait to hear about that. Chad Lefevre's show of bronze sculpture works is on display at Columbia College's Hardwick Gallery through April the 6th. So you have another couple of weeks to pop in and see it. The gallery is open 9 till 5, Monday through Friday, and closed at the weekend, and it is free to visit. Chad, thank you so much for making the time to chat about your work this evening. Hey, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. 
There was much excitement in the local theatre world when Columbia Entertainment Company announced that its 2020 season would include the play August Osage County, a 2008 Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning play by actor and playwright Tracy Letts. The cast was already in place when along came the pandemic and everything had to be indefinitely postponed. There was a faint hope of resurrection in 2021, but with a cast of 13 people and the pandemic continuing to ebb and flow, Columbia Entertainment Company made the wise decision to postpone it a while longer. In the meantime, some of the original cast had to drop out and there was a recasting of those roles and many fingers were crossed that maybe 2022 would bring enough pandemic respite that the show could go on. And now it is, still with its original director, Angela Howard, in charge of the production and still with a stellar who's who of the Columbia theatre scene on the stage. And so... Two years later than originally planned, I am thrilled to finally chat with Angela Howard and actor Dee Dee Farris about Columbia Entertainment Company's production of August Osage County. Hello, Angela and Dee Dee. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. It feels like this production and also several over at Talking Horse Productions have a storied history at this point with multiple date and cast changes, a 24-month ride of a show being on, then it being off, then it being tentatively on, <laughs> then off again. <laughs> Angela, how optimistic have you been over the last two years that August Osage County would ever actually happen? Oh, my goodness. Very optimistic, but cautious. <laughs> I, I've, I really felt like they were going to bring it back, though. They knew that it was going to be a good show based on the cast that we got originally. I mean, we were... We had lines learned. We had props bought. <laughs> we had half a set made. And it was just so sad because we finally were like, we can do this. We can do this. And then somebody said, um, you may not have an audience. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> if we don't sell tickets, you know. So I, I was so pleased. I mean, this was one of the best things that could have happened. I'm, I'm sorry that we lost some of the cast members we lost, but the ones that we gained are wonderful. And it's just a great cast. It's a great crew. I'm excited about it. I really am. Well, of course, what it does mean for you is that you've had two extra years to think about <laughs> how you might want to direct the play. And I'm curious whether this time lag has given you any aha moments or new insights about how you want your production to be. Absolutely. It changed the set was the big thing. When I applied to direct this and I came in for my director interview, I brought a Lego set um, <laughs> with my children's Legos. And I showed them and I said that at the very beginning, I said, this is going to have a very large set. And they knew that. So they were prepared for it. And we have had a wonderful master carpenter. Chris Bowling has just been amazing with getting this thing done. But that was probably the biggest thing. This script has a prologue and three acts. And so the second act, which we are combining into the first act, is the entirety of the dinner scene that takes place right in the middle of the stage. Originally, I had had it on stage right, and I was really glad to be able to look at it because when it looks it looks good in your head, and then you see it up there, and you're like, oh, I don't like the way that looks. <laughs> and so I moved it to the center. I want this to come across 
as if you were sitting outside somebody's window and looking in. So everything about it in terms of the set itself changed. But past that, we've stuck with most everything. Didi can let me know if I'm missing something. But other than that, uh, we've kept a lot of the same things. It is pretty true. The play centers around an incredibly dysfunctional family who gather in their Osage County, Oklahoma estate following the disappearance of the father of the family. And the matriarch, Violet, has mouth cancer, suffers from depression and addiction to painkillers, was abused as a child and has no problem being viciously truthful to her three daughters. Adding her own flavor of cruelty to the soup of chaos is Violet's sister, Matty Faye, Plus, there's a host of husbands and children, all tarnished by not only the family's toxicity, but also harboring their own deep and unpleasant secrets. And yet, despite the many horrors and viciousness, it has moments of a very dark comedy, but there's always tragedy kind of shot through in the background. Mm -hmm. Angela, talk to me a little bit about directing a play that is a balancing act between moments of dark humor where you expect the audience to laugh and moments of toxicity where you expect the audience to take a sharp intake of breath. What is your vision for the production and how you manage all of that? You know, it's funny um, because I was going to say, nailed it, you nailed it. Um, Tracy Letts has done an amazing job with this script. In fact, there is apparently, he told Meryl Streep that after he wrote the play, he showed it to his mother because he wrote it about his grandmother. And mm. his mother's response was, you were too nice. So um, <laughs> it, it, there is like these awful moments in it, just, you know, horrible things you hear. And yet he peppers it constantly with these little side digs that you just can't help but laugh. It's thank goodness you have that levity in there because otherwise your audience would get like, I don't think I want to stay for act two because mm. it would just be too dark. But it's that idea that sometimes we have to laugh in our tragedies because otherwise what would happen to us? We would go down that deep, dark hole that we don't want to be part of. And there's just so many great moments. And the other piece of that has a lot to do with the actors. I have an incredible cast. They have found those moments and you can hear it when they deliver the lines where it just strikes you and you're suddenly laughing and, you, and you're thinking, oh, should I be laughing at this point? That's really funny, you know? So, so we do. And we are allowing that as much as possible because we have to have it. It's just too dark of a show otherwise. Dee Dee, somebody somewhere had described the play as an acting cornucopia and that the author himself, an actor, is an actor's playwright because there are so many hugely meaty roles in the play. What makes this play particularly desirable to you? Oh, for me, first of all, I think that person nailed it. Um, Tracy Letts wrote us a beautiful script, and every character has some beauty and roundedness to them that is so interesting to play as an actor. What appealed to me was I'm playing Barbara, the eldest of the daughters, and 
she is, I think her husband describes her best at one point. He tells her that she's warm and funny, but stern. And um, he, he says it a in, in such, a, it's such a pain in the butt, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I and I think that that is the the beauty of playing Barbara for me. She is a woman who has tried so so hard to make this beautiful life after coming from you know many generations of trauma and having lived through some real difficulties with her parents and and their addictions, and yet she has moved away. She has tried to create this very beautiful life, and as anyone who's experienced this in their family knows, it takes a heartbeat to get right back to where you started. Right. Were there any other roles you would have taken in this play, Dee Dee, or was it Barbara or Bust? Honestly, I think any of the women's characters are, I mean, age-wise, I can only play a few of them, but um, <laughs> I think they're all beautifully written. In fact, my husband and I, my husband's also in the play. He plays Barbara's husband, um, interestingly. Mm. He is enamored of the character of Charlie, who he is not playing. It's an older, bit of an older character. And we joke that someday we'd love to play Charlie and Maddie Fay, who... <laughs> <laughs> Because Maddie Faye is probably the biggest source of comic relief in the whole play. Just the way that, that she is written is very, very funny. And the way that Nora Dietzel is playing her, as you know, is just outrageously hilarious because Nora is such a talented comedic actress. And then Charlie is just the sweet warmth, you know, in mm. the play. There are a couple of characters like that who seem the least touched by what's gone on and have maintained the sweetness in them that you just can't help but be drawn to and yet are, are also very funny and have their moments. So you are one of three daughters locked into this multi-generational collection of neuroses and emotional malaise. Tell us a little bit about your two sisters. So there's you, Barbara. You are married, but things are not going great. You moved away to Colorado. And then you have two sisters, Ivy and Karen. Tell us a little bit about them. Each of these sisters has dealt with their family in different ways. Barbara got away and, and dove into family and work. And Karen ran away and dove into things that are unnamed, mostly, and yet hinge on, on some darkness, hint to some darkness that she's been through in her life. And yet she's newly in love. And she comes back with all this beauty and hope. And um, she just wants to be close to her family again, because she finally feels happy and sorted and feels like this is an opportunity, you know, to reconnect in a beautiful way. Poor thing. And, <laughs> and then there's Ivy. And Ivy is the one who stayed. Ivy is the one who has taken care of her parents. She as well has a career in her own home. She does not live in the home with her parents, but she has been the one who day to day has stayed and, and cared for her parents through their different times that they've had. And so she has her finger on the pulse. And it's very interesting to see Ivy's journey in this. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a beautiful character. Gosh, that is just so well written and lovely. The play is a hugely emotional roller coaster for the audience as each of the characters is so layered one minute they're loving then that peels away and there's anger and then there's tenderness and then there's sadness and there's more yelling and then there's mm -hmm. compassion and there's more love and, <laughs> and so and there's violence <laughs> there's violence <laughs> and so most of the actors need to portray this huge 
dynamic emotional range. So Angela, for you, it's almost, I imagine you like a conductor swelling and dampening the emotions of this you know, pretty huge cast. Your director's job in this play is much more than saying, okay, come in stage left and stand in front of the dresser. I mean, talk to me about conducting this mm-hmm. ensemble and those, those waves of emotion. One of the first things that I did with them in our first set of rehearsals is we did some table reads where I really broke down characters and talked about a lot of the things that Didi was just talking about of what is their motivation. And I had to break down my, my script so that I could see where there was going to be a new unit within the script. You'll see that when you actually see the show, it's like, there's like these flips into new conversations and it's constant where it's just this back and forth and back and forth. And especially with the character of Violet, because she is so much in charge of everything that's happening and yet she isn't. And I actually even last night was sitting with Alana Brannigan Scott is the one who is doing Violet. And she and I were talking about this arc that Violet is on and without giving away too much. I mean, she has put money in front of her husband's salvation and she keeps talking about it. She keeps talking about this, this safety deposit box and, and we had nothing and, and you hear her stories and you look at what's going on with her. And yet you realize In many ways, Violet is a very static character. The people who are the dynamic characters are all the ones that leave, and they all leave. And in fact, the way that I've designed this is that there will be very few blackouts. The actors will actually still stay on the stage during the intermission. I wanted it to feel like the House of Usher. I wanted it to feel like when they came in, once they left, they would never come back, that the audience would know that, that this was their escape, that they had to get out of this house because without it, they wouldn't ever be able to be truly free. And I made a comment the other night that it's like you almost feel like you want little fires to start showing up on each edge of the stage and then the house just collapses down because the only people that are left are Violet and Jonna. And Jonna is the person who was hired to come in and take care. And she's the only seriously sane person in this this whole tragedy that is going on. And so that was a big part of it. I wanted the house to also feel like it was part of the, of the characters and what was going on so that the audience would also feel that claustrophobic, hot, conflicting, where they, they're just stuck. They have to leave in order to be free. I want to ask you about one particular scene without giving anything too much away. It's a fight scene Mm -hmm. that erupts suddenly and violently between two of the women. And all I will say is that Dee Dee, your character, Barbara, is one of them. (laughs) Dee Dee, talk me through that because it's so intense. Mm. I mean, it's been building and building, but it is such a hugely climactic moment of the play. Talk me through how it feels for you to be in that moment, kind of losing yourself into this character. I love this. Um, 
The thing about these staged fights is that to keep everyone safe, they actually are tremendously choreographed. And so anyone who's done any sort of stage fighting realizes you know exactly what's going to happen and when we do. And our job is to make it look like it just, you know, blew up out of nowhere and that it's total chaos. I love that part of it. As someone who used to dance a lot, I love the choreography of it. The trick then as an actor is to allow yourself to seem unhinged while being very much in control. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I find it difficult in some ways because it's difficult subject matter. And I find it cathartic in some ways because even though as a person, I don't want to ever scream in someone's face, to really get in someone's face and scream at them feels weirdly good in a way sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Because she knows I don't mean anything by it. And I know I don't mean anything by it. But you know, when done well, it comes across very effectively to the audience. And so I always kind of relish these moments of such juxtaposition, you know, where you're so controlled, but so out of control, and doing something that is so against your type. But that's the beauty of it, right? Mm hmm. When you have a character that is so intense like that, you as an actor, how long does it take you to and how do you release them at the end of the play so that you can get in the car with your husband who's been (laughs) in the same play as you and just be normal and not be snapping at him and not still be in that moment? Is it easy for you to separate you from the actor or does does it take a while to dissipate? I think it's a little bit of both. And it kind of depends on where you've been that day already. You know what I mean? Like what the day has held for you. I have certainly played some very dark dramas and and roles. And some of them are harder to shake off than others. Someone who's having bursts of anger and resentment like Barbara is, that's easy enough to shake off because it really isn't close to how my mind works generally. I'm not a vengeful person. I don't tend to hold on to grudges very much. So that part is is relatively easy to drop. I I have had other roles, though, where the deeper thought processes of the character are are too similar to my own that um, at the end of the play, I'm just so ready to be rid of them because they're just in my brain too hard. (laughs) (laughs) But Barbara has been relatively easy. I, I find her mostly cathartic to play. Angela, I'm curious, this play is such a huge following in the theatre community because of the complexity of its characters, but why did you want to direct it rather than be in it? Oh, oh, that's a good question, because I really would have loved to have been in it. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and I would have wanted to play Violet because, yeah. Um, you know, when I pick things that I want to direct, it usually has to do with whether it is a really solidly well-written script, especially something such as this, a drama like this. You know, musicals, I enjoy doing musicals, but boy, give me a good meaty drama that I can honestly, you know, without sounding like I'm being too cliche, sink my teeth into. And I, I was just thinking, listening to Didi talk, he's like, I knew that Didi was going to be my Barbara. I just knew it. From everything that I've seen her do, I was like, oh my gosh. You know, so when you already know within the community that you have the talent pool, that's when it's like, yep, this is a show that can work and it's going to work because these people are just so 
amazing. They're strong. They come in. I watch them. And it's it's kind of funny in a way because you would probably think, oh, you know, she's got to be watching all their... I'm at this point now, their acting is so good. I'm like, where am I going to put that furniture? Um, okay, <laughs> I need a sound cue here. You know, it's like my brain is going in that direction because I have the production end of it because I can count on these people. I know that when they come in, they're going to give it everything. And they have. And it's just, it's like you're watching this community theater where you're realizing that this is as good as anything I've seen regionally in terms of the talent level of these people. And and so that makes it a joy, uh, even as dark and creepy. And there's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, like Didi was talking about the, the fight choreography. We're so fortunate Dana Baki is playing Ivy, but she also knows fight choreography. And she just knows how to do it. And I turn it over to her. Okay, tell me what you need my actors to do. And it's it's just seamless and it always amazes me when people come in with those extra talents that you're so happy you've got. Which role was the most difficult to cast, would you say? Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, I would honestly say Violet. Violet is a... She's, like I said, she's a very static character. And so you have to find somebody who can give that consistency to it. And someone who is not afraid to to try. I mean, this is a woman who is an addict. She doesn't always even talk clearly. And some people get really uncomfortable with those kinds of feelings. Even as actors, it's difficult for them to bring that but Alana does it and oh my gosh she's doing just a fabulous job with it Alana is brilliant she's absolutely yeah. brilliant in this and i when i watch her i'm just in awe i think i don't know that i could play violet she's so difficult to play mm-hmm. um, the words are so even just memorizing it would be so tremendously difficult and and i had never done a lot with alana on stage but i have to say being with her is so very comfortable, but I just watch her and it's impossible not to let my mouth drop sometimes. She's so freaking good at this role. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. And everybody is. I mean, I find myself just staring at different actors at different times on the stage going, wow, they really got this. And we've only been at it for three weeks. Oh, my goodness. You know? So <laughs> It's been two years, Angela. It's been two years. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know. But I mean, in terms of really coming back and and when you think about it, it's like you're coming back into a situation where you have new actors and you're hoping, will they be able to bring that same level? And they have and more. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm just so very thrilled with the people that we have. I I just think that the community is going to be like floored when they see their performances. The movie is two hours long, and I read somewhere that the play is close to three hours. Is that correct? <laughs> yes, it, it is. is. <laughs> I have to say, I, I saw the movie. When I first watched the movie, I didn't know the play. When the movie first came out, I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. I mean, it had Meryl in it, for goodness sake. Come on. Um, you're going to watch it. And I turned it off during the dinner scene. I was like, I can't watch these people abuse each other. This is too hard. I don't like it. Um, and I really didn't consider this show again in any capacity other than, you know, eventually learning it was a play. 
I saw it in a regional production in Cincinnati. And it was, I mean, I, I had to pick my jaw up off the floor. And this will tell you something. After the big dinner scene that ends in that huge fight, we had our second intermission at that point. Um, and there were people who were just sitting there sobbing. Yes. Sobbing. And I thought, these are people who've lived through dinners like this, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and in some ways that sounds terrible. But in other ways, this is real life, you know. There are families for whom this is the way they function. And um, it's very interesting to bring that to life. Well, Columbia Entertainment Company's production of August, Osage County, opens on Thursday, April the 7th and runs for three weekends. There are a lot of adult themes in this show and a lot of language that may not be suitable for all members of the family. So I'm guessing it is a adult only performance. Yes, it is. It's definitely R-rated. There's language. There's everything that they list on the movies, violence, alcohol, smoking, the whole bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's all there. Bit of everything. <laughs> Evening performances start at 7.30 plus there's a 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon matinee on the first and third weekends, but not on April the 17th, as that is Easter Sunday. For more information, go to cectheatre.org and Angela Howard and Didi Farris. Thank you for making time to chat and giving us a peek behind the curtain. And I cannot wait to come and see it. Thank you so much, Diana. I can't wait for you to come see it too. (laughs) Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening Boone History and Culture Centre Gallery Director and Curator Audrey Flory Sculptor Chad Lafever Director Angela Howard and actor Dee Dee Farris from Columbia Entertainment Company Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.